Welcome to Blunt History, a podcast dealing with the history of the war on drugs told, well, bluntly. We think it'll have you saying, what the F? We're your hosts, Natalie Brennan and Stina Perkins. Prohibition is one of those topics that has always felt to me so mysterious and kind of enchanting. Which is strange. (laughs) Are you talking about like Gatsby era glam? Yeah, entirely. Or like New York City speakeasies. Or now I'm just thinking of that Broad City episode, hashtag FOMO, where we find out that Abby has a drunk alter ego, Val, who performs at an old timey bar. But I digress. No, but I mean, what you're getting at is real. That is how the media portrays prohibition. And there's a little bit of truth to it. Because although alcohol was by law prohibited, that doesn't mean it was followed as such in practice, at least for certain groups. As always. As always. There are a ton of misconceptions about prohibition. When it was, who called for it, who was punished for breaking it, and how it ended. Should we go chronologically or with the laws created? Yeah. Dates, causes, Protestant women, Al Capone, all of it. All right, all of it. Quickly, bluntly. First and foremost, prohibition was a constitutional national ban that, well, prohibited alcohol. But what's interesting about the 18th Amendment is that it actually prohibited the production, transport, and sale of alcohol. It never explicitly outlawed the consumption or private possession of alcohol. These restrictions came with the passage of the Volstead Act, which defined which intoxicating liquors were outlawed. And President Woodrow Wilson actually vetoed this act. The Senate and the House ultimately voted to override his veto, but this is all to say that it was controversial. Although prohibition is usually framed by this national context, the amendment, the nationwide outlaw, the movement actually started much earlier, at the local level, and this initiative was led by women. The Anti-Saloon League was created in the 1890s and built its mission around the single issue of prohibition. The grassroots organization started out of Ohio, but had branches across the country. When the organization allied with the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the campaign caught the national government's attention. But let's cut to why. Why were women so adamantly against the consumption and sale of alcohol? There were a few different factors at play here. Let's distinguish between why the women were calling for prohibition and why the government ultimately complied, because these are, in some ways, two separate things. Absolutely. Let's start with the women. Prohibition was a feminist issue. Now, it was what we may call today a white feminist issue, but it did affect women in a variety of social and economic classes. The temperance movement mobilized around the idea of what they called home protection. Though we associate the formal slogan, the personal is political, with 1960s second wave feminism, that idea is applicable here. Women were coming forward and politicizing the state of their domestic lives. This podcast was inspired by University of Michigan professor Matthew Lassiter's class, Crime and Drugs in Modern America. When we talked about prohibition in that class, he shared with us this document written by the Anti-Saloon League in 1921 called To Save Prohibition, It's Your Job, where this politicizing of the home is really visible. The title of this document jumps ahead a bit here, giving away the grand mystery of what happens with prohibition, but I think it's fair to assume that its failure is common knowledge. Yeah, entirely. And more on that later. But back to the feminist underpinnings of prohibition, these documents show that women were aligning the state of their own vulnerability to the drinking habits of their husbands quite directly. For example, the anti-saloon document states, quote, women through the ages have suffered most under the curse of drink. 
They have seen gentle natures become bestial under its poisonous influence. They have watched, day by day, the terrible, slow process by which drink has broken the strong and transformed homes, which were blessed with love and many comforts, into miserable shelters where fear and terror lurked by day and anguish was each night's reward, end quote. So there's no question about their motives in ending prohibition. It was directly and adamantly tied to women's rights. Bitch Media wrote this great piece on this topic called Lady Liquor, Temperance, Suffrage, and the Matter of Strange Bedfellows. And it talks about Carrie Nation, who was one of the most prominent prohibition activists, and the analogy she drew in her autobiography between the prevalence of nude photos of women in saloons and the way alcohol, quote, strips women bare, unquote. We can understand the stripping to refer both to the physical abuse women suffered and the financial degradation women were subjected to by their alcoholic husbands or sons. Carrie Nation became a controversial figure when she started actually violently demolishing saloons themselves, most notoriously once with a hatchet. She was arrested and abused for these acts several times, but nevertheless, she persisted. No, no, but really, what she was doing was quite radical for the time. Saloons were a male-dominated space, and she broke down that barrier, gaining national attention for her cause. Both the suffrage and the prohibition movement distanced themselves from her in later years because of these tactics she used, but she really did help garner attention to the fact that alcohol was the cause of much domestic violence. In this way, the woman's call for prohibition was actually tangled up in a larger call for women's rights. For example, the Women's Christian Temperance Union also advocated for stronger anti-rape laws, the right to divorce, protection against child abuse, and more access to free food services. Okay, so we get it. TLDR is that women created the movement. But I guess the next logical question would be why then? Why at this particular moment did alcohol become an issue? So there are a few factors at play here. First and foremost, the nature of alcohol itself was changing. There's this quote. It has been said of distilled alcohol that the 16th century created it, the 17th century consolidated it, the 18th century popularized it. And of course, we're dealing with the crusades against drinking that began more in the 19th century and then at the national level in the 20th century. But the nature of alcohol was undergoing change, if not in just popularity. We're keeping this change broad here because it's difficult to distinguish between the actual change alcohol was going through and the way it was used as a coded scapegoat to reinforce racism. It is true that alcohol was being consumed at some of the highest rates in the 19th century. We're not denying that fact. We are also pointing out that in conversations around the risk of moral ruin in American culture, there is usually always a group being pitted as the cause for this deviant behavior. And this is where maybe we dive back into how prohibition became a national issue. Entirely. Because if Stina and I's collective degrees in women's studies, history, and American culture have taught us anything, it is that there was probably another reason that the national government complied to banning alcohol nationally, simply because a bunch of women spoke out against domestic abuse. And that is not to trivialize their abuse. It's to point out the way that abuse is trivialized. We're seeing it today with the Me Too movement a movement occurring about a century later, right? So let's complicate what's going on here. So drunkenness was in fact becoming a public issue for women and their safety, but also for more general concerns, industry, production, etc. 
Production and American success were equally valued at this time, since the country had just come out of World War I. The war gets brought into conversations about prohibition a lot, but not always for the right reason. During the war, there was a mentality to clean up your act at home to support our soldiers abroad, but the actual passage of the 18th Amendment came after the war had ended. How the war more directly affected prohibition was through the sentiments it had created for immigrants with nationalities that the war had denounced as enemies. This affected Germans, particularly, since they were one of America's main targets in the war. Germans were heavily populated in Chicago. All of the great breweries in the Midwest at this time were German, Pabst, Anheuser, Busch. And Joseph Gustatus, the author of a book called Chicago Transformed, World War I and the Windy City, argues that prohibition painted beer as un-American. Which makes sense, then, why the amendment was written the way that it was. The amendment itself did not prohibit the consumption of alcohol, as we pointed out in the beginning of this episode. It targeted the production and sale. We saw this on the last episode, too, right? Almost the exact same cycle. It wasn't that opioids themselves were being criminalized. It was the operation of opium dens that were criminalized. Why? Because the Chinese operated these dens and their nationality was simultaneously being criminalized as a result of post-gold rush job insecurity. Same issue here. Instead of criminalizing alcohol itself, it's the distribution that is criminalized. Why? Because Germans and other European groups were behind production. This sentiment carried weight beyond prohibition. This time period was marked by restrictive immigration laws and the creation of the U.S. Border Patrol in 1924. Are we saying one inherently caused the other? No. But we are pointing out that the history of crime and drugs in America simultaneously tells a story of nationalism and othering. Morality is tied to Americanness. Deviance is scapegoated elsewhere. Scapegoating is a great term here because it is blame without necessarily invoking action. And that's largely what happened with prohibition. As we now know from this episode and from Gatsby and the Flapper Girl era, people were absolutely drinking alcohol during prohibition. Were rates of alcohol consumption lower? For sure. But was alcohol driven to extinction as intended? Not even close. And so, a blunt history lesson to remember. Prohibitory laws do not necessarily stop behaviors, they change behaviors. And prohibition led to a lot of changes, some positive and some negative. For white women, prohibition was a time of augmented rights, like suffrage. But within the framework of alcohol, saloons were almost exclusively a male-dominated space. As alcohol became an underground business, women, ironically, enjoyed more access to those spaces. This is where our conception of flapper women, or what is sometimes called the new woman, stems from. You hit on something big there, and that is the fact that the control of alcohol became an underground business. The entire fight for prohibition was wrapped up in a larger fight for control. We talked about how women were fighting for more control of their rights. Protestantism was tied to prohibition as part of a call for self-control, which was also wrapped up in the fight against Catholic immigrants. Nationalists were also fighting for control over this larger issue of immigration. But once prohibition was actually enacted, we also see the rise of organized crime. And this became once again another issue of control. Maybe the most prominent figure of this era of corruption is Al Capone, who was also known as Scarface. During Prohibition, Capone ran a multi-million dollar operation out of Chicago in bootlegging, prostitution, and gambling. 
But competition over the illegal liquor trade led to deadly violence. On Valentine's Day 1929, Capone's top hitman, Jack McGurn, also known as Machine Gun, and his gunmen posed as police and killed seven of their biggest rival in the business's men in broad daylight. Though Capone was at his Miami home when the St. Valentine massacre occurred, the media blamed him as the perpetrator behind this violence. It is at this moment that Al Capone is dubbed public enemy number one. And then this public scare over organized crime had a great influence on calling for an end to prohibition. As the Great Depression unfolded, sentiment for prohibition only lessened as its efforts seemed futile. Franklin D. Roosevelt was inaugurated March 4, 1933. Just nine days later, on March 13, FDR called for Congress to revoke prohibition. In December of that year, prohibition was officially repealed under the 21st Amendment. But this is not to say that FDR's presidency led to a legacy of relaxed crime and drug laws. In fact, in some ways, he did the opposite. But you'll have to stay tuned to hear more. If you want to see any of the documents we referenced in this episode, our sources can all be found on What The F's website in the Podcasts tab. Like What The F on Facebook to get notified when we release new episodes. I'm Natalie. And I'm Stina. And this was Blunt History.